the word of God reads as follows. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Who among you is to say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending the sheep in the field? Come here at once and take your place at the table. Would you not rather say to them, prepare a supper for me. Put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. And later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? You also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, Say we are worthless slaves and we have only done what we ought to have done. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. amen. You may be seated. Kept going back and forth on the title uh, for the message today. And uh, it was between uh, extraordinary is ordinary or uh, work with what you have. Uh just prior uh, to the text that you heard in your reading in chapter 16, uh, Jesus had just finished telling some parables. He uh, told one of the dishonest manager, and Jesus spoke about how the manager dealt with the people who owed his boss money and how shrewd he was with them. And then he also uh, later on went to say the scripture that we often quote sometimes, that you know if you are faithful in a little that you'll be faithful in much, and whomever is dishonest in a little is dishonest in much. And uh, that was in the gospel according to Luke. But when we are in the gospel according to Matthew, people use something a little more favorable. The faithful over a few things, you'll be ruler over many. Then Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus and does a little bit of what my New Testament professor uh, Dr. Jamie Clark Souls would say was foreshadowing because it talks about somebody raising from the dead. Then we go to chapter 17 and, and uh, Jesus is holding the disciples accountable. Tells them not to cause the little ones to stumble. Matter of fact, says you'd rather have a millstone around your neck. And then he says if Another disciple sins, we need to rebuke the offender. I think some of us do a really good job of that. <clears throat> but the other part, if there is repentance, we must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day, It says, I repent. You must forgive. It's easy to tell people when they're wrong. It's easy to call them out when they've done us wrong. But when it comes time to forgive, it's a little challenging. Just a little bit. To forgive means to stop feeling anger toward someone who has done something wrong and to stop blaming someone. Another definition says to stop feeling anger about something or to forgive them for something that's done wrong. And then there's also the financial term when it says to stop requiring payment of money that is old. 
but I like how it says to stop feeling anger. A psychologist once told me, you know you are over a situation or you are over an offense when you can recall the incident without reliving it. When you're able to talk about a situation and not get any more angry about it, that's a a, a measuring standard for whether or not you are forgiven. And so it's hard. It's hard to sometimes bring up something where you feel you've been wrong without getting emotionally worked up about it. It's hard to let offenses go. Because if, if we don't let the offenses go and we're constantly reminded of what someone else did wrong, we might just think we're a little better than them. I'm just talking about myself. I mean, I'm not, no, nobody in particular here. I'm just, this is me. And then we often use the phrase, too, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget what you did. And that sounds good in theory. Really does. But sometimes we use that not forget part to really harbor some unresolved anger. We'll say we won't, we, we say we are forgiven it, but if the person does the same thing again, we are immediately able to recall the seven other times that they did this. It's right there. How is it right there? We held on to how we felt about it. And it's only human nature, you know. Oftentimes we, we forget about what a person says so much as how we felt when they said it. That emotion stays there. But we have to truly forgive. And we must keep trying to work on it, even though it's hard to let these things go, because we have to ask God in turn to forgive us. Amen. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's why in the reading, the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith. We can go wherever, we can go wherever you go, Jesus. We can do the things that you tell us to do. But when we start talking about forgiving others and forgiving them repeatedly, might not be as equipped to do that as we think. So the disciples asked them to increase their faith to help them to be able to forgive. And Jesus replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, oftentimes, uh, myself included, we've taken every time Jesus says something about faith the size of a mustard seed and tried to preach it or teach it in small groups and Bible studies as a quantity thing, you know, show people how small the mustard seed is and that's all it needs. And I'm learning in further study that it's not always about explaining the size of the mustard seed. Here, the disciples asked for an increase and Jesus basically told them to work with what they had. They had enough to work with and do the things that they would need to be done, but it was about quality and not just quantity. Disciples were asking for more, and Jesus was just telling them, hey, you've got enough to do some pretty great things. Just 
work with what you have. That faith, that pistis faith in the Greek. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And it's a faith of believing what's going to happen, even though we don't necessarily have a reference that it's supposed to. We practice faith every day. We don't know it, but we do. Or we may not realize that we have faith that when we stick our key in the ignition, <laughs> the car is going to start. We have faith that every other Friday or every 1st and 15th or every 15th and 30th or every last Friday of the month or whatever kind of payment system you're on, that that money will be direct deposited in your account. And, and then when we do things that uh, <laughs> may challenge our faith, we work around it. <laughs> I'll use an example of myself one time. I was uh, working at a charter school up and coming, and uh, they paid us on the last Friday of every month. And uh, they gave <laughs> me a check and said, don't cash it until Monday. <laughs> so I said, okay. I got in my car, and I drove right to the bank, <laughs> only to find several other teachers <laughs> getting out of the parking lot at the same time as I. Because we didn't necessarily have faith that that money was going to be there on Monday. So even there are times when we, are, we, 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 uh, we have faith that something's going to happen and we, we expect something to be there. If we think it won't, we might do something to try to expedite the process. But we, we exercise faith on a regular basis. We sit down on a pew and expect the pew to hold us up. We put faith in people. We put faith in institutions. We put faith in our, our clergy leaders that they won't steer you wrong. We exercise faith a lot and then we work. But Jesus was telling us not only that, but to work with what we have. Because we sometimes think about what we could do if we had more. If we had more people. If we had a better paying job, if we had better resources, if, 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 if we put something, some more effort into what God gave us, we might be able to get a little more out of it instead of necessarily sitting around saying if, if, if we had more. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> Michael Jordan didn't just roll out of bed and get six rings. Michael Jordan was not more genetically blessed than any of the other basketball players in the NBA. Michael Jordan was cut from his freshman basketball team trying to make, make varsity. He was cut. Coach told him he didn't have what it, what it took to play basketball at the high level. But what Jordan did was he worked. He worked harder and harder and harder until he was able to make 
the basketball team his sophomore year. But he didn't stop working there. He took what he had and kept working. He kept working while he was in college, and he kept working even while he was in the NBA. He, did, he wasn't given more. He wasn't, he wasn't bigger, faster, and stronger than everybody naturally. That jump shot didn't fall naturally. He had to work on it. And he kept working with what little he had, which was a freshman athlete that was not good enough to make a team to become one of a Hall of Fame player. And he did that by working. I recently read a book written by Tim Grover. It's called From Good to Great to Relentless. And Tim Grover, for those who don't know, is a professional trainer. He trained some of his biggest clients are Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade, and Kobe Bryant. And he, he noted something that I saw in the book that was interesting about all of his clients who performed at a high level. Uh, what was interesting about them is that they would hit the weight room and work out for a couple of hours before and after the games. Win or lose, they still worked out. Matter of fact, the day Kobe Bryant was drafted to the Lakers, instead of going out to celebrate that he was becoming a professional basketball player, he went to the gym and worked on his free throws. He took what little he had. He, yes, he was tall, and yes, they are gifted with some sort of uh, genetics, but the people who perform at a high level take what they have and work with it. And because they take what they have and work with it, they become extraordinary. You know, at first, Michael Jordan's workout regimen was laughed at by other basketball players. They said lifting weights and working out that much, you're going to mess up your shot. Not going to be able to jump as high anymore. You're not going to be able to, 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 to be able to shoot the shots. But now everybody's trying to hire Tim Grover as a trainer because he took what they had and worked with it. Taking what you have and working on things can make them extraordinary. And that's what Jesus was getting at in this scripture. And I, I have to admit, I, I, I found it hard to get past the uh, slavery image that was presented in the text. Matter of fact, I had to read it a couple times before I stopped stumbling over each time slavery was used. But some translations use the word servant. And when I was researching, there were other, uh, other scholars that were saying that some manuscripts even use servant. But what the text was trying to get at is our duty when it talks about what the slave is doing. We are supposed to, we are expected to take what we have and work with it. We are expected to perform to the best of our abilities with what God gave us because that is our duty. We expect those around us, even when we go to eat or go out to the store, we expect people around us to do their job. They're expected to do what they're supposed to do and not without any kind of uh, hope of fee or reward or accolades or any of that kind of thing. They're just supposed to do it. St. Augustine once said, no eulogy is due for simply him who does his duty and nothing more. Some of the things we do, we, we expect a parade. <laughs> our name in the program, our special accolades. It may be extraordinary in our minds but it's ordinary. We are supposed to do great things for the kingdom. I've mentioned before, I have a friend of mine who says, you know, he grew up old school 
And by growing up old school, that meant if he brought the plates to the potluck, he needed to have his name on the program under special thanks. Now, he's saying it jokingly, but there's a mentality behind that. We are supposed to make disciples of Jesus. We are supposed to do the work of the kingdom. And we are supposed to reach out for the least, the last, and the lost. And we are supposed to do it whether we are the missions ministry chair or not. The title should not make the job worth doing. We should want to do the job with the title or without. And if we have the title, we should not use the title to impede others from doing the work. We should all seek to do the work of the kingdom and work together to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. I, uh, Learned an interesting story about donkeys and thoroughbreds uh, from uh, Dr. Robert Childress. He was talking to me once, and uh, he's the pastor at Covenant Glen United Methodist Church in Missouri City. You see, thoroughbreds and donkeys are uh, subject to be attacked by predators. You know, they'll be on the ranch or out in the wild or wherever they're at, the, the, the coyotes, the mountain lions, whatever is in that area that is a predator they're subject to be attacked but that part is not really interesting how they deal with the predators is what makes it interesting you see thoroughbreds whenever a predator comes out on the ranch or is near the herd Thoroughbreds circle up and they put their heads together and they kick out. And they kick out until the predator has had enough and the predator goes home hungry. Maybe even a couple bruises and some broken limbs because the thoroughbreds put their heads together and kicked out at the enemy when it came. Donkeys, on the other hand, whenever the, thir- whenever the predators came to attack a herd of donkeys, they put their backs together and screamed at the predator, but they were still scared. And what do donkeys do when they're scared? They kick. So they put their backs together and are kicking each other instead of kicking the predator. And the predator gets to take a little something home to eat. And we can sometimes get like that. They're not on the committee. I don't like the way they do it. This is not the way. Oh, get kicked again. This is not the way we've been doing it. And the work does not get done. We use what we have to work together and either kick the enemy or we start kicking each other. And when we're kicking each other, the work is not getting done. We as the church can do extraordinary things. We can do so much more. But we're caught up in the order of the, we're so caught up in the order of the ordinary that we become obsolete. And our own communities don't even know we're open 
We've got to exercise the faith that we have instead of asking for more resources and asking for a bigger budget and more people and, and even a better appointment. We've got to work with what we have and do God's work. We've got to exercise the faith that we have to do the work of the kingdom come, not for reward, not for fame or accolades, not for a pat on the back, but because it's our duty. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says these, the slaves are putting on their aprons and serving one another or serving the master and then not saying, hey, look at me, I serve the food. No, I'm still a worthless servant. I'm still just a servant. I'm still doing what I'm supposed to do because it is my duty. It's because it's what I'm called to do. By faith, we can obtain these victories. Encamped along the hills of light and ye Christian soldiers rise and press the battle for the night shall veil the glowing skies against the foe and veils below. Let all our strength be hurled. Faith is the victory we know that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world using what we have, using the measure of faith that we have and being able to affect the kingdom. And we do it because that is what we are supposed to do. We ought to exercise our faith because it is expected of us. There was a man that came to the pearly gates and he asked St. Peter for admission. And Peter asked, well, on what basis? Man said, well, I worked in the world of financial management for a long time. And, you know, these financial institutions are full of heathens, but I worked hard to turn it into a godly place and make it that the will of God was done at this financial management firm. And Peter said, eh, but of course, we expected that. And so the man said, well, uh, 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 well, I left my, my job with the financial management firm and I started working in the missions. I went to all the third world countries. I worked with the families, the children's, and even helped People get escape, escape from human traffickers. I did that work. Peter said, well, eh, we know that, but that needed to be done. And the man said, well, I've worked hard to be faithful to God ever since God called me. And I kept my hand to the plow and not looked back. Peter said, and your point is? Now, the man was clearly, clearly disconcerted. And he said, well, besides that, I mean, that's all I got. There's nothing more but the grace of God. And Peter said, exactly. Come on in. We are to do the work because it is expected. We are saved by grace. We don't work our way in for the big titles. We are we, we get in for grace. Not for fear or reward, but because it is our duty. And you can do both. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open. And we invite you to come. Amen.